Hi, and welcome back to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. In our first episode, back in 2023, I'm speaking with my colleague Omar Mahmoud, Crisis Group Somalia expert. We have him on today to give an update on the offensive against Al-Shabaab. Omar, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Alan. Happy to be back. So since we've last talked, uh, Somalia has launched this large offensive against Al-Shabaab. Um, and in some places it is going well, and in other places, I guess, less well. This is huge news after many years of what was, I think, rather a, a more static warfare, if you will. But of course, the, the devil lies in the details. And in Somalia, as always, those details are complicated and hyper-local. So you recently visited uh, near some of those front lines or near where some of that fighting is taking place. First of all, what did you find? Yeah, so not too long ago, we went to Galmadug, which is one of the states where the offensive is playing out a bit. And, you know, I I think we definitely came away with the idea that there are, you know, uh, very varied thinkings between Mogadishu, between state capitals, between community levels. Galmadug really highlighted uh, a lot of that in that visit. For example, we were able to meet with the mayor of Bahdo, which was one of these frontline towns that has resisted al-Shabaab um, for quite some time, actually, even, even before some of these dynamics kicked off. And, and so talking to, to him and really understanding the perspective of why his community is resisting al-Shabaab and how that differs from how, you know, maybe the, the state government portrayed it, how it differs between those in, in Mogadishu portraying it. You know, and I, I think something he, he kind of said really struck me you know, it, it was clear that the, the town's sort of Sufi roots were very important in this resistance. You know, he talked about how a couple of years ago, Al-Shabaab had demanded that the community there start to hand over some of their some of their youths for recruits. And it wasn't necessarily completely about losing, you know, family members to Al-Shabaab. It was also about those family members being indoctrinated by Al-Shabaab's ideology, which went completely against, you know, his, his, his own ideology, the more prevalent ideology in the, in the town. And so I think understanding from a, from a micro level, the through lines in this wider offensive, but also how this differs at various parts within the layers and at the ground level was, was hugely important. So why now? Why this offensive at this time? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple of reasons I think we, we can trace. First is that, you know, some of these communities that have risen up against al-Shabaab have actually been doing this for quite some time. You know, and we see episodic resistance here and there. Uh, Sometimes, you know, the the typical pattern has been a community gets fed up, you know, this sort of balance between what al-Shabaab provides and al-Shabaab demands. And so they resist. Usually a cycle of retaliation and and sort of war between the the clan and al-Shabaab ensues. And often... What the pattern we've seen is that a lot of these clans eventually submit to to the group, that they're not able to maintain their resistance for as long as the group is. And so later they come away and, and cut a deal. And and so this is the pattern that's been going off and on in parts of central Somalia and, and, and elsewhere over recent years. Now, of course, there's a couple of changes that have happened now, a couple of different dynamics. You know, one is you have a very intense humanitarian situation. I think everyone's aware five failed rainy seasons in in Somalia, you know, another one of these very dramatic drought periods that's ongoing that could potentially tip into famine as well. Some arguing that even in in parts um, that that might even be the case. Uh, And and so that's basically, you know, created an additional layer of hardship for local communities. And so they're not necessarily able to meet al-Shabaab demands, especially uh, financially or otherwise, 
Uh, they're not necessarily seeing some sorts of relief and whatnot. It puts them in, in a more difficult spot. Secondly, I think particularly where this kicked off in, in Haran, um, which started with the Hawadle community there, there were some other underlying dynamics. Al-Shabaab had moved into that territory more gradually in recent years and almost started to you know, choke off some of the areas. You know, Al-Shabaab often sets up new, new checkpoints and, and whatnot that, that had an impact on the local economy, both preventing some local businesses and NGOs from continuing services, but also displacing the local administration there in terms of, of taxation and whatnot. Uh, and so I think that added a layer to it. There was Al-Shabaab's attack along the Ethiopian border in, in late July at a couple different points along the border. Al-Shabaab attacked and, and really had some incursions deeper into the Somali region of Ethiopia. That, of course, set off alarm bells on the Ethiopian side and reinvigorated this desire to have buffer areas on, on the Somali borders and reestablish some connections with, with communities there. And so I think you had all of this kind of coming together. But one of the, the different factors, you know, we can't ignore is, is of course, you had a new administration in, in Somalia as well. President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud came into power in May. By August, when, when a lot of these factors were kind of coming together in Iran, his government was finally set up. You know, he had his prime minister and his cabinet in place. And he'd always talked about doing something differently this time around, but engaging at the community level a bit more. And, and so I think when all of this kicked off in Iran, which, which we have to say kicked off without government planning, but the government saw an opportunity and capitalized on it and, and kind of jumped on it there and then tried to expand it there out. Hmm. So... I think when people hear about a you know government offensive against al-Shabaab, generally they would have an idea of a national army on a multi-pronged front, you know, sort of taking it to the enemy, so to speak. But in the Somalia context, it's not quite <laughs> that simple. So could you just break down exactly what, what we mean when we say there's an offensive against al-Shabaab, how that looks? Yeah, uh, I mean, exactly. So, so the difference this time around and different to some of the offensives we've seen in the past you know, a lot of them were, were Amazon-led by, by the AU mission, and Somali actors were very much a secondary force and, and kind of expected to basically backfill Amazon forces as the holding force, and, and Amazon would continue outwards. That was kind of the model in the early 2010s. You know, Operation Badbado, which was, you know, maybe the, the major operation on the Farmajo administration, was more Somali-led, but very much involved still still the partners uh, within this at the expense of some local community involvement. And so what's different this time around is this idea that the Somali government is engaging with clan militias at the community level. You know, collectively, this is referred to as Mahawisle, um, kind of after the, the way uh, nomadic individuals in, in Somalia address themselves. And, and so it's this idea that it's, it's more of a, a community-led approach. I think the reality is we can say it's a community-involved approach. The, the Somali government and its national forces are still very much leading a lot of the fighting, uh, but they are engaging with the community and working with the communities at, in, in various parts of this. And on, on the Somali side, you know, it's, it's the advent of some of these specialized forces. So the Danab Brigade that's trained by the U.S. or the Gorgor that, that's more Turkish-trained that have really been part of this, the Haramad as well, the Turkish trained force. And, and so those elite forces have been working at the community level to basically go on the offensive, push out. The Somali National Army is, is there as well. A key question here is, is 
what happens next, you know, who are the holding forces, you know, because you have a variety of security actors involved here. You have the elite Somali forces, you have the regular Somali National Army at the state level, you should have the Darwish and, and, and the police. Um, and then at the community level, you have the, the clan militias as well. And so I don't think that part of the picture has been completely um, resolved. But essentially, in terms of pushing outwards, it is the government working with its elite actors trying to mobilize uh, acceptance and, and cooperation at the clan level and to continue that. And, and that's what we've seen work, I think, decently well in Haran and, and to a degree Middle Shabele, but in, in Galmudug in some of those fronts, um, that's hasn't progressed as far just yet. Hmm. And so what's the main constraining factor on this strategy? I, I, I imagine it's that, you know, the federal government only has so many of these elite forces, which, you know, are very effective on the offensive front. You know, and then, like you said, then there's the question of if they redeploy those, someone has to hold that territory when, when, once they leave. Is that is that basically the main constraining factor? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's part of it. You know, this has always been a huge question in Somalia in terms of the, the hold forces. This is why the Amazon operations earlier kind of ran out of steam because they didn't really see that backfill from the Somali side as much as they needed to, in order to be able to continue moving on forward. Uh, right now, the Somali government is undertaking very significant force generation of um, Somali forces. You know, um, uh, this is happening in, in various parts with, with different partners. And, and so they're really trying to make up that gap because, you know, on top of that, it, it's not just about, you know, pushing forward from Al-Shabaab and occupying those areas that are recovered. It's, it's also about, you know, the, the background here is the Atmos mission, the rebranded Amasom, which is now the Atmos African Union mission is also supposed to be drawing down at the same time over the next two years. And so it, there's a lot of areas that will require a security presence. And so, so I think that's one sort of constraining factor around the hold forces. Who are they? Where are they coming from um, in, in terms of pushing forward? You know, another constraining factor, though, and, and I think this was illuminated through some of our, our field work, is that, you know, the resistance has gone or the offensive, I should say, has progressed fastest in areas where there was always already a degree of localized resistance. So, you know, for example, in, in Haran, you know, that had already kind of been kicking off and the government moved in to support that. Where we've seen it stall is in other fronts where maybe that localized resistance hasn't been as strong in the past. Uh, there's still more work on instigating it or on uniting it in, in some sort of way. We've seen Al-Shabaab try to undercut it with some communities as well. What is the strategy for, for moving this forward if it, if, if it has momentum in some areas and not momentum in other areas at the moment? It, you know, where do you think this heads? Well, essentially, I think what the government's trying to do is prove that it is a better long-term bet than Al-Shabaab for a lot of these communities. So, you know, even in areas where maybe the community hasn't demonstrated resistance to Al-Shabaab or hasn't really, you know, moved thus far, I think what the government's trying to do is is, is show a model in areas where this is, has happened and everyone's kind of watching what, what's happening, well, how it's played out, not just on the offensive, but how it plays out even after liberation. Um, of course, that raises a lot of expectations locally, which is something that definitely came across through through our field work as well. And the, the idea is you kind of capitalize on, on the momentum and you continue to push and, and more will kind of come under this umbrella. I think that's how the government's framing this. Now, it's going to be very different in other parts of, of Somalia. Thus far, this has really happened in, in central Somalia, predominantly amongst the Hawi'i clans. 
you know, um, there's a, a great degree, degree of arms already circulating there. A lot of these clans have already been armed for quite some time. Um, a great deal of, of prominent personalities that are also represented on the government side. You know, this has been part of their strategy, which is to engage um, personalities from these communities, either uh, present in the government of Mogadishu or some of the regional capitals to basically engage at the community level and mobilize and go to the front lines and kind of serve that linkages. Uh, and, and so that's a bit stronger, I think, also in in central Somalia. When when there's talk about expanding this to other states in southern Somalia, so southwest Jubaland, it runs into some some different issues. You know, Jubaland's already been very adamant to say, you know, we're not going to go with the Mahawisle type approach. You know, we're not going to engage the clan militias and, and community in this sort of way. You know, we have the professionalized forces, the ones we don't have, we'll get trained and, and we'll work on that and, and we'll we'll go about it that way. Um, Southwest is also, you know, it's it's a a different, you know, the Digil Marifle is, is, is a different uh, clan family there that's much more diverse and, and scattered. Um, there's also political issues that overhang that. The, the you know, leader of, of Southwest State, um, you know, some argue his mandate has expired. You know, others argue he, he has a one-year extension. Um, so there's a political element there as well that maybe wasn't playing out in, in central Somalia. Thanks, Omar. Just one quick question before we move on uh, slightly or take a different angle. In places that are relying on these clan militias, is this a sustainable model? I mean, what what happens to these clan militias once they've you know served their purpose in pushing back Al Shabaab? If that's what happens, but then you have this question of sort of how do you move Somalia to a to a more orthodox sort of functioning state with a with a more normal security sector? I mean that that is a key question, and I and I think for the critics of this approach, the, the government's efforts to date, it centers primarily around this concern, engaging at the clan level, engaging clan militias, not properly managed, basically could open the door back to clan-based competition, clan-based warfare, even that we had seen in Somalia, you know, in the early 90s, for example, as, as a worst case scenario. And, you know, I think the government is, is clearly aware of, of that concern, but hasn't probably provided, you know, a very sufficient answer as to what exactly happens to um, clan fighters afterwards. You know, well, one option is is to integrate uh, those who want to be integrated into one layer of the security apparatus, whether, you know, that's the Darwish at the state level, for example, or, or elsewhere. Um, of course, that has a financial implication that has other sorts of training and, and requirements there as well. You know, some, you know, dynamics could point to, you know, the idea that as long as the Somali government is, is, is present in some of these areas, that would prevent against clan-based competition emerging. You know, that was part of the issue in, in the early 90s. You didn't really have a, a government present, you know, however weak it is right now. Um, I think the key there, though, is, is to look at the reconciliation aspect. You know, the security and the politics are obviously intertwined here. Uh, reconciliation needs to be part of the story, both pre-liberation in terms of the planning and, and organizing at, you know, a, a wider community level, but then post-liberation within the specific areas that have been recovered. You know, I think we've seen this story happen in, in Somalia quite often where, in areas that al-Shabaab was in control in, you know, you don't really see the clan uh, dynamics playing out so much because al-Shabaab basically puts a stamp on it. You know, uh, they don't necessarily resolve those dynamics. And, and so as soon as they leave, you see that competition flaring up again. 
And so it'll be very key for the government to sort of manage that. And if you manage that part of the story, then I think the the security dynamics become uh, a bit easier as well. Hmm. Now, how has Al-Shabaab responded to this offensive against it on, on several fronts? I mean, I, I think they are under pressure. You know, their their messaging, for example, suggests this. They, they've talked frequently, criticizing the government's engagement of clans, you know, almost for this, this th- same motto where they say, you know, we are above clan. You know, we, we don't want to come back to the clan warfare of the, of the 90s. And, and the government's kind of leading us down that approach. Uh, you know, the government's been working on other sorts of efforts, such as trying to organize uh, the ulema, you know, the Somali Islamic community a bit more. And they've been quite critical uh, of that. Militarily, you know, they have put up um, some significant resistance in, in parts of central Somalia. When this kind of kicked off, you know, some suggested al-Shabaab might kind of melt away in, in central Somalia and, and to southern Somalia to kind of protect against that. But we haven't really seen, you know, that. It, uh, they're, they're clearly putting resources into defending central Somalia, uh, but they are very much, you know, preparing for the more asymmetric battle. You know, another part of this is to, is to raise the costs by attacking the government in, in government areas. And so we've seen a wave of, of some, you know, very significant complex attacks in Mogadishu, for example, and other government centers. Um, you know, this is designed, I, I would think, to distract the government, uh, but also to raise the costs for the government by inciting some discontent uh, locally in, in some of these areas. So in, in Mogadishu, that's happened even even in both Haran and Minul Shabele, for example, areas that had, had been more or less cleared in the past week, you know, Al-Shabaab was able to launch some um, vehicle-borne suicide attacks in, in, in those dynamics. So, so they have put up very significant resistance. Um, I think the third part of this is Al-Shabaab's own relationship with the local communities. Um, you know, harsh tactics are often part of its playbook in terms of getting communities to, to submit to it. And, and that's really worked for the group in the past. Uh, but that kind of flipped, especially in the Haran case, where they targeted some civilians, and it really galvanized that community against al-Shabaab. And, and so there's a little bit of a balance here that I think we see al-Shabaab playing out. Hmm. Interesting. Almost like a political campaign going on amid the amid the military offensives as well between the two sides. So last we had you on, it was to discuss this major crisis group report uh, which you worked on for quite a long time, arguing, you know, with crisis group arguing for a, you know, a strategy to eventually engage al-Shabaab in political talks, or at least to explore that possibility. When you were researching that, the momentum, you know, seemed to be more or less on the on the side of al-Shabaab, I think it's fair to say. Now, now that situation has perhaps flipped. I'm just wondering how that has changed the context around this discussion of eventual talks with al-Shabaab. There was, there was a lot of chatter about this about the time that the new administration was coming in and so so where is that uh, discussion sort of headed on the backs of this offensive you know i think what we would say is is you know uh, the offensive is is part of military pressure but we still don't see a military solution to the, to this conflict in terms of being able to decisively end the war you know to decisively end that level of contestation i still think you would need a settlement at, at some point and, and and we always viewed this as as a long term prospect, you know. The the June report was about starting that conversation on the challenges uh, on how to get there, and you know what could be done potentially to, to to lay the groundwork. And and so military pressure is certainly part of of the puzzle, and the offensive fits in there. Um, but I think where you know I would challenge a bit of the narrative coming out on on the government side is this idea now that it'll emerge victorious. 
um, against al-Shabaab, even in, in one to two years, as some of the recent statements have, have come out on, on the government side. You know, I, I think um, al-Shabaab is clearly an adaptable, resilient actor. We've seen that in the past. Yes, the engagement at the clan level is a new tactic and, and a new dynamic to be this strong. Um, but we've also seen, you know, how hard it is to maintain that level of unity going forward and, and to marshal that across, you know, such a wide swath of the, of the population. And, and so essentially, I think there's kind of two schools of, of thoughts here. You know, one is uh, this idea that al-Shabaab must be weakened before you ever got to even entertain the idea of, of some political settlement or some, some engagement along those lines. And the offensive is clearly part of that. Or, you know, this other uh, line of thinking that's going is, is that the offensive shows that al-Shabaab actually can be defeated militarily. And if that's maintained and sustained, you know, um, that's the way Somalia will, will progress and end this war going forward. You know, I, I think I would still, and Chrysler Group would still subscribe to, to, to the former uh, argument around that. Uh, but we understand, you know, the current environment is not conducive to, to considering this idea. You know, often you have this cycle where a new administration will come in and kind of want to try their hand and, and kind of throw everything at this and, and kind of see where, where things fall. You know, the difference is, of course, this isn't completely a new administration. It's one that's been there before and it has learned from some of the, some of the past as well. The other key point we would say is it's not just about the offensive. It's not just about pushing al-Shabaab from territory. It's about what happens next, which will really determine the, the success, success or failure of this. And, and by that, we mean, you know, um, not just even the security arrangements or the reconciliation dynamics, but how stabilization happens in these areas and in these areas that have been recovered from al-Shabaab, how the government extends its, its, its services and its presence, the expectations locally. Um, from communities that have either, you know, working with the government or, or recently, you know, um, w worked to clear some of their areas from al-Shabaab with the government, you know, what happens next? We, we see a rash of, you know, almost district council formations in, in, in Somalia. And basically that means, you know, a new district has been named in this particular area, which implies a certain set of services will be going there. We've seen Somali officials fly to various remote parts of the country and, and argue a new airport will be built in this location. You know, very high level of expectations locally. Um, and so, you know, in order to maintain that momentum, it's not just about pushing the offensive elsewhere. It's also about meeting these expectations. You know, everyone we talk to at the local level looks to the state level. State level's looking to Mogadishu to fill this gap. Mogadishu's filling to the international community to fill this gap. And so it seems like everyone's looking elsewhere and there's a bit of an expectation gap that that could emerge eventually in the long run you know even if this is a new chapter in the, in the struggle against al-shabaab in terms of decisively ending the war we'll probably still need to to you know get to a table at some point um even if that point isn't right now so as you mentioned somalia is obviously facing a, a very terrible drought can you update us a bit more on that humanitarian uh, situation where it is right now but also how does that affect this military offensive? Um, the government wants to keep expanding its offensives, but some of these areas are also terribly affected by the drought. How is that impacting this whole situation? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the drought, you know, we had the uh, day of rains that came at the end of last year. There was, you know, a little bit of rain, but unfortunately, this was, again, below average. So basically a fifth consecutive failed rainy season in Somalia. Now, there's other rains coming up early in, in this year, around the April to, to June time period. Uh, but the predictions are, again, that these these would fail. And now you have sort of an unprecedented situation of, of six, the prospect of six failed rainy seasons. 
when it comes to the drought tipping into uh, famine, essentially what the, the IPC, which is the organization that conducts the, the research around this, said, the, the famine risks that they were expecting at the end of 2022 has been pushed back to around the mid of 2023. And this is particularly prominent in parts of Bai uh, region near Baidoa, but they also added, I think in their latest report, uh, a risk for IDPs in, in Mogadishu as well. You know, while international funding um, came through at a, at a decent level in 2022, they, they expect less in 2023, uh, given, you know, the, the global climate and all sorts of other competing areas. Uh, and also because, you know, food prices still still remain high. So, you know, essentially there's no natural relief coming in. And, and so the argument is, is in order to stave off famine, you do still need that intense humanitarian response. You know, there's, there's a couple issues around this, of course. I think the, the interesting one that, that we're looking at is, yes, how does expansion of the offensive in areas of, of southern Somalia, which are highly affected by famine, uh, impact that? You know, and at one point, I think we saw almost two different conversations happening in, in Somalia. One by humanitarian actors who were arguing earlier that they needed to expand the areas of their services to, to areas outside government control as well given the need and, and, and whatnot and, and kind of exploring, you know, they have a couple different categories, you know, inaccessible, hard to reach areas or the, the more difficult categories. I think within that hard to reach area, you know, how, how they might go about um, expanding services and aid there. Um, at the same time, you know, had a conversation on the government side, basically saying, you know, we'll clear these areas, then humanitarian actors can come in as, as part of stabilization efforts, as part of other efforts. Um, and, you know, almost kind of blurring that distinction between maybe humanitarian and stabilization actors. Uh, and, and so, you know, I saw uh, two kind of different conversations coming uh, around this. And, and it really is a con- conversation about sequencing. You know, do you have to wait for these areas to be cleared for the government, uh, for, for humanitarian actors then to be have access to them? If not, is there a way to have access in, in the interim? Or does that mean that people who need aid must travel basically to government held areas where the humanitarian actors are operating in order to receive aid. You know, one difference between this famine response and maybe that of, of 2011, for example, is a lot of it is being done more by, by cash, mobile efforts. So in theory, someone could come out from a particular area, get to a registration site, register themselves and return back and then receive, you know, monthly aid uh, inputs or whatnot, you know, via, via mobile money. But I think there is still this, this open question in terms of if this expands in areas of, of Southwest, for example, early in 2023, at the same time, we're talking about these famine indications, you know, coming up quite strongly. Uh, how, how does this intersect? How can, the, how can the government basically take into account the humanitarian situation? Uh, how can humanitarian actors ensure they uh, get aid to where it needs to be? How can the impact on civilians be, you know, the least possible sort of adversarial impact? Uh, so I think that's going to be a very difficult conversation. Um, it, it's not one that's kind of been fully solved. And unfortunately, the reality is, you know, with, with climatic changes and whatnot, the, these consecutive failed rainy seasons is, you know, putting Somalia on, on this path where, you know, this is almost coming to be part of the, the norm. You know, some other work we're working on is, is about, you know, climate adaptation and resilience and, and these sorts of aspects, how that intersects with the conflict setting as, as well, because uh, I think that's part of the, the picture going forward. So, so clearly not out of the woods yet. I would say there is reason to be a little bit more optimistic than a year ago as well, 
given that you do actually have a government in place now. A year ago, we were still in the midst of a, a political cycle that was unending and very unclear how it was going to play out. And, and you do have, as a result of that, more sustained international attention as well. But um, clearly, this, this humanitarian response is, needs to continue, and, and the offensive will, will have to take that into consideration as well. Now, we're running out of time, but a couple sort of quick, broader questions on uh, Somalia while I have you on, which I think are, many of our listeners will appreciate. Um, first of all, Hassan Sheikh, one of his campaign points was very much that he was going to pursue reconciliation between the federal government and, and the federal member states. And that relationship obviously deteriorated quite a bit uh, under Farmajo's administration. Um, you mentioned the question of term limits that are, that, that are coming up for some of these leaders. Um, and obviously, there's been regular meetings. But essentially, how is that reconciliation project actually going? Yeah, I think this has been a, an uneven picture at best, we can say. You know, there, there was a bit of an assumption with Hassan Sheikh coming in that, yes, you know, uh, the, there would be a, a grand reset between the federal government and the member states, that this relationship and this problem was was more of a Farmajo problem. Uh, you know, the reality is this is a Somalia problem. You know, it, it predates the Farmajo era. Yes, it got worse under him. But this has been a historic problem since, you know, the advent of the, of the federal system. You know, the, the key questions about power sharing, um, resource sharing haven't been fully answered. And I think basically what Hassan Sheikh has done, which was quite positive, was to kind of visit some of the member state leaders that were closer to Farmajo and basically reassure them to say, you know, he's not going to come after them politically. And, and let's just put that on, on the back burner for now. And once the offensive kicked off, kind of trying to marshal their efforts towards that and avoid touching some of the thornier issues. Let's just focus on areas of cooperation, lowest common denominator, push forward on that and maintain pressure against al-Shabaab, basically not try to divide amongst ourselves. And, you know, that approach has, has been, I, I think, a mixed bag. You know, there are regular meetings happening between the federal government and the member states. Uh, which is a, a very positive dynamic compared to you know the lack thereof of those in the second half of, of the Farmajo administration. But these meetings have been almost kind of kind of bland in, in kind of what they've been discussing or the outputs, you know, the communiques we see coming out of that. So, you know, there's still strong tensions between the government and the member states. We've seen this particularly thus far on, on some financial resources that have come into the federal government, member states complaining they're not making their share, you know, various, you know, even various ministries at the member state level saying we will no longer work with our federal counterparts because we haven't gotten, you know, our share of XYZ. Um, there's obviously personal dynamics, you know, uh, Hassan Sheikh, for example, and, and the leader of Puntland, who, who invested very significantly and ran for president as well, and then allied with Hassan Sheikh. Um, there's, there's a level of dissension there. And then I think the Puntland-Mogadishu relationship is, is, you know, quite rocky right now, and it is a very important one going forward. But it goes beyond personal dynamics. Um, at the most recent national consultative conference where the member state leaders and, and the government gets together, Puntland didn't want to sign a couple of the provisions, uh, particularly around how the judicial system will work, uh, basically arguing that the federal model still hasn't settled a lot of these things, and Puntland needs to see that settled before they can kind of accede to some of these things. Uh, but of course, then you come to the political dynamic, the, these term limits, which is something that the federal government also hasn't said much about. Every state basically has added, you know, Puntland aside, has added a, a year to their 
their terms. In some cases, the constitution was changed. So that's actually a kind of long-term issue. In some cases, it was just for the current administration. And, and the federal government has a tight balance to walk here because they don't want to antagonize the member state leaders. Uh, but at the same time, accepting these term limits, one, goes against what you know, Hassan Sheikh was campaigning uh, against Farmaggio in, in the first place and, and the Council of Opposition Candidates. Uh, but two, it also upsets dynamics locally in some of these states. So, for example, in Southwest, right now, Lafta Garen, the president there, is, is arguing, you know, he does have this uh, year extension. But some of those from that state that are close to Hassan Sheikh are basically arguing the opposite. And so how do you appease kind of both sides? Um, so so I, I think the approach has been uneven because it's been more, let's put these deeper issues aside. But, you know, the more you put them aside, the more the risk comes that all of a sudden there's, there's maybe a bigger conflagration uh, down the road. Great. Thanks, Omar. I wanted to talk with you about the long simmering political crisis in Somaliland, but I think we'll have to <laughs> save that for another day. It, it, just quickly on this offensive, just to close up. What should uh, Somali officials and their outside partners most be thinking about? Um, and what are you most thinking about in terms of the major questions and concerns into this next phase? I mean, I know we're working at Crisis Group on a piece on this coming up. So just share share a bit of your thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple key questions here. You know, one we, we discussed a little bit more, you know, who are the hold forces in areas that have been liberated? And what is the role for the clan militias within that structure going forward? Um, secondly, is around reconciliation within these areas, you know, to what degree can the, the federal government with its state counterparts uh, ensure, especially in, in, in some communities where there is, you know, deep seated clan grievances or multiple clans living in, in a certain area versus, you know, more unified areas um, that, that have been liberated to date? How can that dynamic basically uh, ensured it doesn't channel into an additional layer of violence. You know, if, if you think about it locally, if you liberate an area from Al-Shabaab where, where the group's been controlling for, let's say, 10 to 15 years, this really represents a new chapter on sort of their history. And, and actors will inevitably be trying to assert themselves within that new environment and that new dynamic and set the tone. And so it's very key to integrate and streamline reconciliation processes um, throughout that, thinking about that before liberation, but then also following through after. And part of the problem I think we've seen in other areas where, where sort of reconciliation conferences have happened, especially at the state level during state formation processes, is that a lot of these were politicized. And there was almost a predetermined outcome where they then organized the conference around to get to that outcome. So avoiding that same trajectory so you don't recreate that problem at, at the local level is, is really key. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the stabilization, the delivery of, of, of services and, and basically expanding the government presence. You know, I think the key line here is, yes, Al-Shabaab lost some of these communities. I would say the federal government hasn't necessarily won them over. And Al-Shabaab is also actively trying to win them back. Basically, you know, Al-Shabaab's tactics uh, aggrieved a lot and, and, and pushed a lot away. Uh, and they're turning to the government to, to ally with it, but there's an expectation that comes with that, and the government is promising a lot. And so failure to win over those communities long-term means it will open up opportunities for Al-Shabaab to re-enter the picture down the road as well. Thanks, Omar. We look forward to, to, to having you back on the podcast again soon. Sure, look forward to that as well. Thanks, Alan. 
Thanks for listening. The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell. You can find out more about Crisis Group's work at crisisgroup.org or at Crisis Group. The Horn is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. You can tune in again in two weeks to our next episode.